in the 90s in music and technology and audiophiles and workstations in delivery impossibility for what the internet could be yeah. there were a lot of creative people and i happened to be there i was a lucky guy thank you for joining us and welcome to the focus right pro podcast this is a mostly bi-monthly show where we dive into the cutting-edge technology behind professional audio products if you missed episodes 23 and 24 which are the first two parts of our three-part conversation with Tom Kenny, content director for Mix Magazine, we suggest you hit pause on this one and go back and listen to those two first because we're going to pick up the conversation right where we left off. On this episode, we'll discuss hearing David Lynch ask for a cup of joe, getting guitar drones from Trent Reznor, writing headlines and editing copy for the San Francisco Chronicle, and a whole lot more. I want to give a shout out to John Ross at Digital Sound and Picture and tell, tell a quick story. Because John Ross, um, I met him through a couple independent films. I met him on a David Lynch movie and on Austin Powers 2, International Man of Mystery. The second one with, with uh, Lenny Kravitz to an American woman. and uh, Oh, that was great. Madonna to a beautiful stranger. So John Ross was this maverick in Hollywood outside of... Uh, He's from South Africa, came in here, and just a brilliant guy who adapted technologies in the 90s. And he he built a, a digital sound and picture, an independent sound company that you know, made success through Xena, Warrior Princess, and things like this in television. But he did a lot of independent film. And in the 90s, John was building a glass console that had touchscreen, like 68 yeah. or whatever, to control workstations when the rest of the industry was on mag film. Yeah. When I saw Austin Powers at Digital Sound and Picture, we were waiting for Mike Myers to come back from Cannes. And it turns out that that night I'm there two days doing the movie. Mike's plane's delayed doing something. So they have a technical run through all set for Mike. And um, I'm the only guy there. My day's done. I have to get to LAX. They're on the south side. And it's the first time John's doing playback from 24-track Pro Tools sessions and recording back. And nobody else is doing this. Everybody's recording back from film, dropping to film moving around. So there's a technology component, but then I'm the only guy at the studio at the Euphonics console with Pro Tools Playback. Look up the year, Austin Powers. I forget yours, but brilliant stuff. And he goes, well, Tom, do you want to stay and listen to it? I mean, we have to play it. Nobody's here. The crew wants to go home. It's me and you. I said, I have a 945 flight. So I'm listening to digital playback and it's like, it's pretty cool. So we listened to it. I watched that movie on the release print and with digital playback like um, three weeks before it comes out. And then it's 30 minutes to my flight. And John Ross has a Dodge Viper on the south side. This is before 9-11. So we go to LA and I'm going over, over 100 miles an hour through downtown LA to get to LAX. I made my flight. Long story short, this man, John Ross, flew planes drove fast cars, developed a glass console when there was no technology to develop it, worked with all kinds of workstations, bringing them together, and created a real model that came eight to ten years later to the industry. Yeah. I'm not, yeah, that's true. Do you remember that's this? True. I mean, does that... I'm, oh, yeah. No, I do. I remember... I don't think and I one of the things it. about his... Yeah. No, not at all. And one of the things about... It's so funny about digital sound and picture. I had a friend who worked there at the, t- at the time, but also just the location, 
in you know the outskirts of Culver City. I think it was on Washington Boulevard, right? This original building. Yeah. Down there and and like I got to I got to LAX in like seven minutes. Yeah, I got well, like seven minutes. Well, f- well, for that whole industry at the time, which was so Burbank centric, I believe, right? Or or Hollywood. For a guy like him, I mean, that was, oh, he was not only was just sharp. what he was doing technically with this facility, but just the fact that he would just like had the balls to go, you know what? I'm going to do it down here. Yeah. Like, you know, so I got this great warehouse. Uh, space and, you know, back then Culver City was not cool. He did. He you did. know, back then Culver City was not cool like it is today. <laughs> and he threw and he threw this place <laughs> down there. And right? uh, I think it's some other post place now, but he was so far ahead of his time. He was. And I think that's a genius of our industry that those independents can really drive like, technologies and workflow. Yeah. yeah. And it's fine if the majors catch up later, but it takes a John Ross to sort of push that. Yeah. Some of that is an entry to my David Lynch story. Cause I got to say uh, a digital sound and picture. Yeah. And I'm going to forget, that. I'm going to forget the name of the movie, but it is involved that Balthazar Getty in the late nineties. And John was a digital sound and picture and his, his wife, Nancy, John's wife, Nancy is wonderful. I mean, I can't tell you how, how much they sort of pushed technology at that point. When I'm walking onto a Disney lot with 35 mag dubbers and I walk into digital sound and picture with a glass console. I mean, this is 10 <laughs> years before an iPhone. Yeah. This is 10 years before the first iPhone is released. John had a touch screen to control a console. Yeah. That's, come on, that's unusual. Yeah, it is. Well, maybe not 10 years before, but five years before. Long before Slate Digital, John had a touchscreen. Yeah. <laughs> controlling do re mi dons for dialogue, yep. uh, fair lights for dialogue, do re mi dons for music. Unbelievable. So David Lynch is one of his clients. His partner, Mary, had just come off the straight story, and David Lynch was doing this about the Zargetti movie. And I live in the Bay Area, so David had done a bunch of his post-production up here at the Saul Zanz Film Center until then. But he's, he's a digital sound and picture. And I come down and say, my God, I love Twin Peaks. I want to do a story on David Lynch's new movie. And John tips me off. So I come down for three days just to hang with him at the mix and figure out what story to write. And so one of the things I love is David Lynch is a painter. He's a gallery hanging painter. I mean, he's a he's actually a actually worthy of the art it's not because he's a filmmaker that he's a painter he's equally adept and so he pulls up the first day in a toyota tacoma white pickup truck with two by fours in the back and i'm thinking this is the hollywood i love i'm from indiana where we still wear cut off jeans you know (laughs) david lynch drives a toyota tacoma pickup truck we're gonna have a good time so i go in there and he's with his producing partner mary and he's just come back from the czech republic where at the time scoring work was moving from Hollywood to Eastern Europe to Salt Lake City to Seattle. I mean, non work to higher state. That's a whole other argument. But Hollywood was losing a lot of scoring work. And David, with the budgets he has, had to go to the Czech Republic. And thankfully, he had this what Angelo Badalamenti is a brilliant guy. And so they're doing things like recording um, clarinets through 50 feet of PVC pipe. Things like this. This is what I'm finding out. I mean, he's asking these guys to let's have four violas and eight cellos bounce off a mirror, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, like th- this kind of thing. And I'm sitting at the uh, digital sound and picture just in the chairs and hanging out and trying to be non obtrusive. And he tells me, he goes, Yes, and Angela, and he turns around, David Lynch, and I'm going to 
it's going to sound like a funny voice, but he sort of talks like this. He says, so after we left the, after Angela and I left the Czech Republic time, we stopped in New Orleans at my friend Trent Reznor's house. <laughs> at this time, I know that Trent has built a studio in yeah, LA. We had a, we had a who loves Trent Reznor. And he had a studio and this is the height of Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. And so he goes, and so I, uh, I asked Trent, this is 10 years before Trent wins an Oscar, <laughs> you know, and, I, yeah. and he goes, so I asked Trent to give me some guitar drones. I go, awesome. Wow. Wow. Oh. <laughs> and David said that at this time, Hollywood was either a two or three position mix on film. There was a mixer for dialogue, a mixer for music, a mixer for effects. And David's at the music position on the euphonics, and John is doing dialogue and effects. So David Lynch has 16 faders, and they're just bringing these things in off workstations. And this is not how the rest of Hollywood is working. And at one point, he's bringing in Angelo Badalamenti stuff from the Czech Republic. He's bringing in Trent Reznor stuff from New Orleans. And I, I, I'm sitting there. And he pulls some faders up. They stop. And he goes, ominous, creepy, nice, nice. <laughs> I go, like, David Lynch is mixing his own movie. He knows about technology. I've heard this about him. And he grabbed Trent Reznor 10 years before Hollywood woke up to him. Yeah, And I'm just thinking, like, this type of guy is pretty – some people see things before the rest of us do, right. you know. And, again, a wonderful lesson for a young kid to yeah. know that – he also said, I love Twin Peaks. I'm 56. And he turned, turned the mix. I think I told this to Dan the other – he says uh, to, his, to his partner, Mary, he says, uh, say, Mary – since I gave you half my donut this morning, do you think you could bring me a cup of Joe? <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, cup of Joe is like the seminal line from Twin Peaks, oh, yeah. the original limited <laughs> edition Twin Peaks series. Is amazing. Oh, that yeah, Netflix yeah. and Amazon and everybody yeah. are still basking in the it's glory a, yeah, of Twin you're right. Peaks. You're absolutely, oh, that's true. That's so true. And cup of Joe <laughs> was the seminal line that Kyle McLaughlin utters. That's a damn fine cup, cup of, of Joe. <laughs> And a cherry piece of cherry pie. And I'm laughing. And there's no cell phones at this point. I'm laughing going like, I, I want to tell my brother, David <laughs> freaking Lynch just said, cup of Joe. <laughs> and so at the one time, like in my travels through this industry, I do get a glass console. I'm, I'm amazed at people like John Ross behind the scenes who do this forward thinking technology that changed the way we work. And I love the fact that, that I heard David Lynch say, Cup of Joe. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, great. That's yeah, great. yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a lucky man at that point. Right. Yeah. But, but exactly. talk, when you talk about music with, with him, doesn't he, I mean, he had a, he had a pretty elaborate home studio, didn't he? I think he did. And he had you find, but the thing about talking, when you get into the sound for film world, that was very interesting to me is that, um, the sound designers, these brilliant people who start to, um, when yeah. I started in 1988, there was almost this conflict in the film sound world between sound effects and music. And the term sound designer, which Walter Murch had, Walter Murch didn't necessarily do, but Walter Murch to me is the epitome of that type of guy who controls the, has a vision for the whole soundtrack and designs that sound. David Lynch was one of those guys who sees how music and sound effects work together, yeah. that sound effects have a frequency range, that we have to dance with each other rather than... And in 1991, when I went to Hollywood, I got, I used to think like, why are you guys fighting on the dub stage? 
<laughs> some people figured out that they work together and today we get to have the benefit of all that there's yeah. wonderful amazing you know movie soundtracks and there's amazing netflix and amazon limited edition series these are all people who have learned this craft and yeah uh, no, there's some, we got to see yeah. that transition. There's some great sound for film now. Like we're spoiled, I think. Yeah. Especially with like Netflix it, and the streaming stuff, right? I mean, it sound it sounds amazing. All of it, a lot of it is really, really good. And and uh, well, the, this mixed sound for film event at Sony Pictures every September yeah. has been a wonderful success for me. Focus Right has helped. I mean, thank you, John. But no. the the point is that like, the second or third year we made it mixed present sound for film and television yeah. yep. because those two once you get into the limited edition streaming services right the production workflows and the talent the creativity isn't that much different the schedules are tighter but yeah. but we have a we have a merging of like sound as an experience yeah no it's becoming I got, more i got to be a yeah. part of that yeah yeah it's great man. from the doors movie to from the Doors movie to Game of Thrones and beyond. Yeah. And now Killing Eve. Killing Eve. Everybody's right. talking about Killing Eve. Yeah. I love it. I love all of it. We all do. And, and you know, that kind of ties things back to coming full circle with video having better audio than audio. You know, as you were saying, yeah. you know, it's always been a, a bit better in films than it has been even on CDs and typical medium like that. Well, we live in entertainment technology, like the introduction of HD, the first real broadcast of high-definition television, which was a technology, the longest product introduction in technology history. I saw, I saw HD television probably at NAB in probably 1995, and people have short memories, but it wasn't until 2005 and such that people really – you replaced your Trinitron or whatever. And you, I mean, maybe earlier yeah. than that for people in the community, but – in terms of Best Buy and everything else. And that technology took a long time to get there. But once it did, bam, the world took over. I mean, yeah. and we, yeah. unfortunately, we don't get that. The difference between MP3 audio and 24-bit audio is the equivalent of a CRT versus uh, 4K. Yeah, but yeah. in audio, we're not, we don't know how to do that. And I, it's sort of, no. I mean, I wish we did. We'll, we we'll get there. It's a good point. We will. And and point. that gives us a good segue into the recording industry as a whole and overall. And since in your 31 years at Mix, yeah. what have the changes been in the recording studios uh, that you've seen? Well, it's funny. That's a loaded question. I once <laughs> asked Walter, I once asked Walter Birch, I had this sort of big mix interview with Walter Birch, who did Godfather, uh, The Conversation, Apocalypse Now. Walter, he won the most. Uh, rare Oscar in history. He won a double Oscar. He won film editing and sound, best sound for wow. the English patient. I mean, who wins wow. best editor and best sound? Wow. Yeah. I mean, you don't get that. And Walter, I, I asked him a question, like well, a journalist question, like, what have you seen as the most important technological advancement in the last 50 years of film sound? And I'm thinking like automation on consoles or digital audio workstations. Yeah. And he says, um, well, at a certain point, Tom, all technology is irrelevant. Balzac wrote 80 great novels with a quill pen. <laughs> and I go, oh, no. Uh, and, um, and then we had a nice conversation, but it's real. Yeah. <laughs> if you give yeah. me two cans and a string, I'll make you a soundtrack. It was Walter's point. And I'll do the best yeah, I can. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I also thought he'd mentioned digital audio workstations. And he, I asked him about digital audio workstations because this was the mid-90s and they were all the rage and People are still on mag, but working with 
the emerging Pro Tools, and said, and he says, well, we were sold on the idea of digital audio workstations as allowing us time for creativity. What they've really done is delayed decision-making. And I'm a young journalist thinking like, one, that's profound, and two, he's right. Yeah. yeah. If you have 16 channels, you got to know how the drums sound. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Yep. He said to me, Tom, if you're doing a scene in a movie with a junkyard alley fight, there will be some people who want to come to you with four versions of the dog collar on the dog that's there for a second. Yes, but I don't know what I would do with that track. I would gladly sacrifice the dog collar in favor of the jugular. And I go like, yeah. oh, my God, what does that mean? And it's profound. But the truth is, is it's, right. it meant decision-making. At some point, I had to say, this is what's important in the song. This is what's important in the movie. This is what's important in the story I'm telling. And make a decision on the soundtrack. And I need to know yeah. if Al Pacino's leather jacket Russell is more important than the dog color. And Walter made that decision. Yeah. Gary Rystrom said to me once, I don't know what I would do with a hundred tracks, Tom. <laughs> that's you know, great. I mean, <laughs> coming from him, that's a, that's a statement, yeah. right? That's a statement. That's great. And that's real. That's so real. That yeah. we get mired. Sometimes we get mired in technology and you're a technology company. And I, yeah. I applaud you and you, but yeah, that's at a certain point you have a, um, a wily statement who says, I, I need a lot of hand claps yeah. for the doors. <laughs> How do I do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I've learned all that at Mix. I spent five years, I called it leaning forward. I, I probably <laughs> averaged for five years of my life, soon after my divorce, I would work at Mix during the day and I got, I somehow I bypassed unions and everything and I got a job for five years in the mid 90s writing headlines and being a copy editor for the San Francisco Chronicle. So I would, um, I would go to Mix at 7.30 in the morning and work till 3.30, jump on BART and arrive at Fifth and Mission in San Francisco and jump in till four to midnight writing headlines and I knew nothing about it. And there's these grizzled old veterans who go like, how the fuck did you get this job, Kim? But I stayed five years and I, Willie Brown was the mayor of San Francisco. It was a fun time to be alive. Wow. The mid nineties in the Bay that. area was a That's fantastic a time. Willie was a great mayor and a brilliant politician. I had the local desk and the state desk and, and I would like work till midnight. And then I would go to mix at seven in the morning. The wow. paper would be delivered. Oh, that's a my story, dude. The, Tell us that. That's my, a great story. My headline would be yeah, on the front what? page. And I'd be my boss. I go, yeah, they let me do it. Mix let me moonlight. I had two jobs in order to pay alimony, child support, and give my daughters a, <laughs> give my daughters a wonderful life. Yeah, I good mean, for I, you. That's I, great. I, yeah, I cared about being a dad. And during the week, right. I mean, not only would I, would I burn the midnight oil seven to midnight, but I was also a newly divorced single dad and I would date. And sometimes I would be out till three or four in the morning and um, <laughs> wake up and do it all over again. Shocker. And uh, I did that during <laughs> the week. And that was, a, that was a real lesson, but it taught me about the immediacy of a daily news cycle yeah, or yeah. whatever and um, writing a headline and being clever with words. Yeah. And the, big... I'd also the commitment of mix a monthly that yeah. I go like this mix is my love and my industry, but I need well, it's a, a huge I talent to, to have the, to be able to work both of those a daily and a monthly. My, so my dad talk about my dad again. I don't want to, you know, yeah. sorry. Um, but he was a newspaper guy for, uh, for whatever. It's amazing. World. Yeah, yeah. So I know what you're talking Where about. At? Uh, in Buffalo, Buffalo, yeah, yeah, Buffalo Courier Express, 
before they um, folded. And then he moved on and did uh, around New York state and in Massachusetts, he was involved with a bunch of newspapers, but yeah, yeah I know, I know what you're talking about that world. That's uh that's amazing that you did. You could do, you could meld those two yeah, together. I did that five years. I called Dude, it it's, late. It's a lot of work, man. Oh my gosh. I probably, I, I calculated later in life. I was in my early thirties and such. And you know, yeah. Yeah. try to, I was, I mean, I was the first in my family of 12 to be divorced. And I felt like a bad person, but I made a life, made a life for my daughters. And um, it's great. part of that was always working two jobs. And I, I called the Chronicle and said, I, at four years, I said, I'm, I can't do this anymore. They said, hang on till five, Tom, and you're vested in your union and the pension. And I said, I can hold on to five. That's All great. Right. That's great. And so I yeah. did that and I worked hard. I did it for a lot of reasons. So I could get a three bedroom apartment so I could be there with my daughters and uh, and whatnot. But all of it was necessary. Yeah. All of it was necessary and all of it was good. But the part of that is being in the Bay Area in the 90s, guys, I can't tell you. I mean, I'm 56 and seeing that first wave of the Internet, people forget virtual reality was first proposed in the nine. I mean, been worked on since yeah. 1950s, but they had efforts with Jaron Lanier and a lot of other people uh, that you had gloves and goggles and all the ideas were there. They We just didn't have the bandwidth or the processing yeah, yeah. at the time. This is a little known story that I will fact check it, but I know I'm right. Jerry Harrison, you know, Talking Heads, big, fantastic producer, fantastic artist. It's in the Bay Area, early 90s. And there's a lot of uh, you know, development that the rest of the world didn't see. And he had a company, and this is the first stage of we we're getting out of cassette tapes as a delivery medium to record labels and such. And he says the internet will democratize yeah. music. The internet will democratize. His company was called Garage Band. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Yes. Early 90s. Yeah. And um, I, I have no idea what Apple paid Jerry Harrison for the <laughs> rights to Garage Band. But it was a real early effort of the kind of thinkers that were there saying like, Later, that becomes Justin Bieber or whatever. Yeah. But in 1992, right. it was Jerry Harrison saying, like, I have this idea uh, that music can be distributed over the Internet where 90% of the world didn't even have an AOL account at that point. Yeah. And these were the things that you saw as a 31-year-old kid in the Bay Area in 1990s. And we have cell phones. I mean, the Internet is divided into the Internet and then mobile, basically. And having the privilege of being in the Bay Area in the 90s was a great education. Yeah, I, I mean, bet. Wow. It was when yeah. people were trying really hard with ideas that couldn't be fulfilled, but people like Jerry were there. In 1993, he's there saying, I know musicians can reach their fan base. How Nobody else yeah. was thinking that. Apple had to buy the name off him. I think... And, I, and Jerry... Yeah, I... Th <laughs> I'm not sure how that worked out. I, I don't know. We'll have to check legal about this. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We should, and 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 what I'm about to say too, I think. But I think he was involved with, you know, the early iterations of CD-ROM technology, right? Oh, and absolutely. I, I yeah. think he was involved with, you know, you'd get his concept of, and probably others at the time, I'm sure. But I think he was involved with releasing CD-ROMs that had, you know, you had music, you had video, you had text, in one package, and that's how it was CD. It was CD Interactive. There was actually right, a term, right. CDI. Yeah. Yeah. People forget that. And I think he was involved, you know, at some point with, with that as well. Minds. Yeah. 
these were great people yeah. and great minds that sort of saw the idea of technology and what it could deliver. It's almost sci-fi. Yeah. And then 30 years later, we have the bandwidth. Well, just put, it. yeah, Here's exactly. Right. We didn't, back then it was like, you know, how do you, how do you deal with this? All Dude, for Jurassic Park, I go up to Skywalker Sound and I've been there since Terminator 2. So I go up for Jurassic Park. And Jurassic Park was seminal in the film sound industry because, one, it's the formation of DTS, of digital theater sound, yeah, which competes yeah. with Dolby Digital and everything. And that was part of the universal platform that DTS at that time was a double system in, in order to get Jurassic Park. Steven Spielberg was a third owner, Universal, everything else. Uh, in order to get Jurassic Park, you need to have the DTS system playback. And that's when they're going to 3000. And that development happens in combination with technology companies and industry. And it's brilliant. And in the early tech world of the Bay Area, I mean, these are the same people doing it. They're trying to figure this out. And we're all the beneficiaries of that today. I laugh and I go like, I've heard people say my age, like he has an AOL account. And I say, <laughs> well, at this point, you should sort of like say, awesome, yeah. dude, you're original. You're, you got I mean, mail. You held on. I mean, you were there the first wave. <laughs> so don't mock me yeah. for having AOL. Here's, a, here's another quick note. If you ever run across somebody with a, at well.com, W-E-L-L, well.com. You bow down and you salute and you say, thank you, sir. You are the pioneer. The well addresses in the Bay Area are the, the earliest. earliest. And they stand, they're Stuart Brand from the Whole Earth Catalog and the wow. brilliant MIT strategist, Stuart Brand. He had the Whole Earth Catalog and the a well address, if you live in the Bay Area from that first round, this is late 70s, early 80s, yeah. um, is Whole Earth Electronic Link. It's the whole Earth catalog, which was Stuart Brand's yeah, creation. Yeah. Really minded MIT. The whole Earth electronic, le electronic link yeah. with the L. That's the well address. If you ever see that in your travels, if anybody ever sends you that, you stop, you put down whatever you have, and you say, Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. You are a wonderful pioneer. You are on the wagon train of the internet. <laughs> you are on the wagon train. Yeah. Amazing. And that's that's what sometimes people forget. I mean, we, we take for granted we have mobile devices, we have remote tablets, we have control apps. Yeah. I'm not a Luddite at all. I love this. I, I love social media. I love the mobile escalation evolution of what the Internet was. But in the 90s, in music, in technology, in audiophiles, in workstations, in delivery, in possibility for what the Internet could be, yeah. there were a lot of creative people. And I happened to be there i was a lucky guy yeah uh, it's a it's a it was a hard to emphasize that. i sound like a grandfather when i say that oh no no, no it's good i don't care no you just happen to be there during a lot of uh, uh changes to our industry do you want to know another worthless story sure. do you know why why india is a call center there's a very practical reason for why and my daughter was in Bangalore for junior year of college. And that's, I learned about this before, but there are seven trunks of the internet built by WorldCom. And the first wave of the internet, there was WorldCom, Cisco, some of these seminal companies, seven international giant trunks. This came to uh, the public notice a few years ago when one of them was cut in the uh, Mediterranean and they cut off basically Southeast Europe and Israel and Egypt. There's two outside of Asia, two outside of the Americas, one outside of Europe. This is the early days. They were built by WorldCom, which went through a tremendous scandal in the mid-90s, late-90s. Yeah, yeah. 
like like as big as Enron, but they yeah. hush it up. Right. And so WorldCom had built all these trunks that that directed seven of them directed all internet traffic in the world. And one of them was parked right outside of Bangalore. And when WorldCom went belly up uh, and their a call to Bangalore became cheaper than a call to Chicago from LA or whatever. And these are the technology sort of uh, foundations that happened in the nineties. that sometimes people forget when they have a mobile app or they have something like this. Jerry Harrison was a Jaron Lanier. Some of these founding fathers, of this music and technology revolution, I was a 29-year-old kid looking at this. That was a lucky moment. I mean, I'm privileged yeah. in that yeah. sense. Yeah. So that's my soapbox. Um, <laughs> what do you guys, I mean, here's here's one thing that I, I would like to ask you about. Podcasts yeah. were originally proposed late 90s. They tried to do it, no delivery mechanism through downloads, nobody's that interested. There isn't the transition that radio. What led you to sort of because now podcasts are crazy good and means to reach a lot of people. What yep. besides product? What made you decide to do people like me? What was the driving force? Personally, I've just been attached to podcasting for a couple of years. Uh, become a big fan of it, and uh, we hit a big milestone this year with podcasts hitting over a million shows just within the last month now. Yeah. Overall, uh, in, really, in the whole podcast industry—it's it's, it's huge at this point. Yeah, even uh, there's a lot going on in podcasting. It's the new radio. It, it is, and and the thing is, we're not trying to be overly branded here. This is a branded podcast, obviously. Oh, you know what you are. You you know what you are. Of course we do, yeah. but you know we're we're not trying to do that. That's not what we're trying to do. Uh, Ted and I both we have a huge appreciation for the industry, and we want to learn as much as we can. And and bring that out to as many people as we can. I'm I'm speaking for myself there, I guess. So Ted, what, yeah, no. what are your thoughts? Yeah, no. It, well, it was Dan's initiative for the Focus Right Pro podcast was well, was all Dan's idea, but the whole concept is to hopefully, I mean, we can sit here and tell stories and do stuff, and everybody does that. But I think we we want to help promote the tech side of yeah. of this industry that we love so much, and you know. You know, technical excellence and creativity. It is. That's yeah. what film and, and audio for film, TV, music, gosh, you know, live sound, all that stuff is just, um, there, there's so much to learn. And, yeah. and I think I'm, there's stuff behind the both. scenes beyond the, the obvious stories. I think, you know, of, you know, yeah. you could sit here and talk about the latest big uh, tour, I, you know, like Cole played it or something like that. But yeah. It's not what we don't want to do about, you know, I'm we just, so, we want to talk I about so agree with you. Be, yeah. You know, undercurrent, so to speak. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, I did say I'm, I'm Irish and storytellers. And um, when I was in journalism school, yeah. Studs Terkel was a hero. Yeah, he writes these yeah, books absolutely. about working and the pressure and stuff, but they're all like yeah. regular stories from regular people, right. which are just as meaningful as it's exactly how it, did we right. do the Super Bowl? You know, to me, yeah. that's just, the stories are, one has magnitude, but they're they're good stories. Either one. I mean, I grew up in an Irish family. The thing I love about podcasts yeah. is right. these are our stories. You know, we now have an opportunity to reach an audience that wants to hear our stories. I grew up with four channels, five channels on TV out of Chicago right. that you got over here. Uh, now we have the opportunity to hear like what Les Paul says yeah. about yeah. multi-track recording. You're not live, but 
in, in retrospect, but or we have an opportunity to hear like how Bob yeah. Clear Mountain yeah. approaches a mix. That's that's brilliant. That might be a good place to to wrap things up. So Tom Kenny, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been an amazing show, and it, this is probably going to be a two or three part episode, which has only happened one other time, and it happens to be with another amazing journalist, Frank Wells, who I know you know well, I know well, Ted knows well. Is there anything else you'd like to say before we do close this? Yeah, I I, I don't talk about myself. I, I never do. Uh, being in the middle of 12 children, I never do. I don't like my picture taken. I never have. It's not a Native American thing. It's, I just, I, I'm very shy about this stuff. So when you, when you approached me, the opportunity was like, uh, Tom, tell stories, no. have, a, have a Jameson. Um, that's appealing. That's but usually this conversation takes place at a nice industry dinner with like great friends. And that's some of the appeal of the audio industry. I, I honestly feel like I have made a lifetime of friends. I've made a lifetime of great dinners and great stories. And I happen to be involved in a technology, creative, left brain, right brain industry that is special. What other industry will find an increase in value in 75 year old microphone technology? <laughs> what so, what yeah, other industry true. will pay yeah. top dollar for a 90-year-old mic? And <laughs> I love that. I love that companies like Focusrite can grow out of a simple idea for a console and, yeah. and later dev- evolve into a, a sort of way of connecting your modern studio through Dante. I mean, yeah. uh, right. you have come right. from a module at a console to a we yeah. are the most connected – will connect you, yeah. your equipment and your people. And that to me is like what this industry is all about. I mean, it is. that's a great evolution. And that's honestly why we're here. So Tom Kenny, thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys so much for this episode and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Focus Right Pro podcast. This mostly bi-monthly podcast is produced and hosted by me, Dan Hughley for Focus Right. Music is by Merlin. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Join our conversation on social media at Focusrite Pro. For more information, please visit our website at www.pro.focusrite.com. Angelo Badalamenti is a brilliant guy, and so they're doing things like recording um, clarinets through 50 feet of PVC pipe. We were sold on the idea of digital audio workstations as allowing us time for creativity. What they've really done is delayed decision making. Say, Mary, since I gave you half my donut this morning, do you think you could bring me a cup of joe? <laughs>